Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. Um, I'll be reading from Acts 13, verse 1 to 16, and then Acts 14, verse 21 to 28. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God and the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet called Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul. Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for for that was an, uh, for that was, for that is what his name means, opposed them and turned to, and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said. You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, and he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Pergam and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And then Acts 14, verse 21 to 28. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must, go, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, and prayer and fa- with, with prayer and fasting, committed to them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidium, they came to Pamphylia, and, and when they had preached the word in Pergam, they went down to Atalia. 
from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On, arrive, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Great, so um, let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your scripture and yeah, this, this message you have for us. And please um, soften our hearts this evening and let us receive your message that you have for us. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Well done, Helena. A lot of uh, hard words in there. Uh, you may have heard back in March this year of the rediscovery of the famous ship of Ernest Shackleton called Endurance, which sunk over 100 years ago. It had previously last been seen in 1915, when the Irish explorer Shackleton, originally from County Kildare, and his 27 men watched as the ship had sank into the icy depths. The crew's mission as members of the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition was a daring plan to reach the South Pole by traveling on what was then unmapped terrain of the East Antarctic. Charismatic, reckless, and obsessed with the South Pole, Shackleton was a major figure in what became known as the heroic age of Antarctic exploration in the early 20th century. Disaster struck in 1915 when the ship became trapped in a pack of ice. For 10 months, the immobilized vessel, uh, immobilized vessel floated while crew members camped on the ice floes and waited for the ice to melt so they could hopefully retrieve their ship. They played football and hockey on the ice. They trained and exercised their dogs. They hunted for seals and penguins. In the evening, they did amateur theater and concerts and played the gramophone. <laughs> As spring arrived and the ice started to melt, unfortunately, the pressure of the shifting ice began to warp, crush, and twist the boat's wooden frame, and the ship was lost. The mission was now not to cross the Antarctic continent, but to get all of the 28 men back alive. The main problem was not ice, but morale of the men. The story has twists and tales and other heroes within it, including three hardy Irish sailors called McNeish, McCarthy, and Vincent, who went on a rescue mission with Shackleton while their colleague Frank Wilde remained in charge of the 22 men. They lived for four and a half months under two overturned lifeboats. Eventually, the four men with long beards, matted hair, tattered garments, worn for nearly a year without change, found help. They regained strength, and they went and rescued the 22 men that were left. One year and 29 days since the original set-off. It's an amazing story, if you ever get to read it, of courage, determination, and teamwork. Shackleton supposedly wrote this as an advert in the local newspaper before he went on his mission. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in return of success. There we go, it's not your four hour working, for a four hour working day, is it? But apparently 5,000 men replied, of which 27 were chosen. Why do I bring up that famous story? Well, today we're thinking about Christian mission. And to go on a mission like Shackleton, 
You need to know where you're going. What will it be like? How will you survive the challenges? And what does mission accomplished look like? Acts chapter 13 and 14 is our blueprint for understanding Christian mission because it's the first ever missionary journey by the greatest missionary that ever lived, the Apostle Paul, and it probably lasted between one and a half and two years. Acts 13 is a pivotal and momentous moment in church history. Why? Number one, the church is no longer centered at Jerusalem. It's no longer a Jewish sending church. It's a Gentile sending church in a place called Antioch in Syria. And up until then, no one had ever caught a vision for taking the gospel overseas. The gospel had been gossiped and even strategically moved throughout the Palestinian and Syrian mainland, but no one had ever thought, let's go abroad overseas. A few people had gone to Cyprus of their own, you know, that's where they were from, but never a strategic mission until Acts chapter 13. In Acts 1.8, we read this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This is Jesus' word to his disciples. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria. Well, that had happened. The disciples had been witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And Jesus says, to the ends of the earth. That had not yet happened. Acts 13 is an epoch moment. An, an epic moment, I should say, excuse me. It becomes a blueprint of how we get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I have five lessons for us, and we're going to work through them. What does it mean to be God's people caught up in God's mission? Firstly, Christian mission starts with people being sent by a Holy Spirit-inspired church. Verses 2 and 4 say, While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, and they placed their hands on them and sent them off, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia. So as the church was praying and fasting and worshipping the Lord together, the Holy Spirit stirred them and spoke to them, and said, I want you to participate in something slightly bigger than what you currently think is happening. This little group of believers are praying and worshipping and fasting. It all sounds lovely, apart from the fasting bit, doesn't it? They say we're just having a great time together. They're very tight-knit. You get that sense. And God was active, and God was present, and you probably like the weekend away. You go, this is wonderful. And what's the temptation? Let's keep it all to ourselves. Let's not break anything up. Let's make it nice and cozy, because we've got something we like. We don't want to lose what we have. What we have is so precious, and so the temptation is to control it and to keep it. But you can't control the Spirit of God. If you want God's presence in your midst, you need to keep going. As soon as you stagnate and try and control things for your own benefit, you take your eyes off your Lord and Savior, and you quickly lose the presence of God. You can imagine how it felt for that sending church. We're going to release two of our best leaders, Paul and, and Barnabas. They're going to have to go, but we, we, we need them and we've used them. We're used to having them speak. and We're going to send them? Isn't that a bit risky? How, who's going to fill the gaps? And, and what about this? And Paul, you know, we're going to send them? Maybe that's how you feel as we talk about multiplying into two congregations in September. We don't want to break up what we have. And we should celebrate that God's done something wonderful in our church, and it's a wonderful sense of community we have. And yes, there'll be some personal losses and vulnerabilities and things that change the dynamics, and I'll miss that, and that used to happen like this, and now it... 
But if we want to keep God's presence with us, we've got to keep hearing call to go. And we'll need patience, we'll need love, we'll need perseverance. We need to be humble as we make mistakes. But woe betide us if we take our eyes off the Lord and, and his mission to the ends of the earth and put it on ourselves to keep what we have for ourselves. We'll lose the fire, we'll lose the vibrancy if we look to look after ourselves alone. But as we fix our eyes on Jesus, worshipping, praying, fasting, the Spirit will say, come on, let's move on. So the, and notice the whole church is involved. They're all praying and worshipping. They're all together. It's not a few people have made a few decisions and that's it. No, there's senders and there's goers. Well, we're sending Paul and Barnabas, but that means we're sending, we're involved. So mission isn't just a few people. It's not a department of the church. The church is a missionary people. And so our prayer as we start the second congregation is that everyone knows I have a part to play. I might be more of a sender. I might be more of a girl. I might be more of a prayer. I might be more of taking a... God will lead us and lead you, but there's a sense in which we all get caught up in this, that there's a role for us together. So Christian mission starts with people being sent by a Holy Spirit-inspired church into known and unknown waters. Shackleton knew some of what was laid before him, but most of it he didn't. It was unmapped terrain. There's five things the Christ City Church knows and we can count on. Ready for them? The one, our mandate, to bring the gospel to all nations and all people groups. And for us in the city of Dublin, to start with. Two, the mandate. Secondly, the message. Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins and assurance of salvation that is found that those have put their faith in him. We have a message that brings life. We have a mandate, we have a message, we have power. The Holy Spirit in our midst will give us everything we need. The mandate, the message, the power, our supporters, the church, we are, we support one another. When we feel vulnerable, when we feel isolated, when we, feel, we have the family of God. The mandate, the message, the power, the supporters, and then the promise. Do you remember? And I will be with you to the end, Jesus said. He's never going to leave us. And he says, as you go, I'm going to conform you to become more like me. And you'll look more and more like me as you keep following me. So he'll be with us and he'll conform us to be more like him. So we know those five things, the mandate, the message, the power, our support, and the promise. That we know. And of course, we can make some strategic plans. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, who was with them, they made some plans. They went to Seleucia, verse 4, and then Cyprus. They went to Salamis, verse 5, and synagogues. And they traveled to Paphos once they were on the island. Why? We don't know, but they clearly had some decisions to make, and they made them. But the exact journey, the exact people, the exact context, how it will all work out, well, it wasn't known. And that's how Christian mission as always. You never quite know every detail. What did God say to the first ever missionary? Do you remember his name? Genesis 12. Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to where? The land I will show you. I'm not going to give you, I'm not even going to tell you where the land, I'm going to show you that in time. Now you just go. God doesn't show everything in advance. It's unknown and it's known waters. It's an adventurous step. How will it look like? Will we be okay? Will we succeed? Will we fail? What obstacles will come? How will it work out for me? We don't know. We don't know the answers to all those. And nor can we know. We're a bit like the Israelites walking in the wilderness and we just need to keep God in our midst and he will guide us on to the next part. 
As we start a second congregation, if you're anything like me, you might want to ensure we have all the, answer, all the questions answered, everything wrapped up nice and tightly, then make sure it all goes well for me because I currently have these arrangements that work for me. That's natural, that's normal. And yes, let's be wise. Let's seek God for every step. Let's look after one another. Some people might find it harder than others and we need to be mindful of that. But let's not negate what the famous John Wimber from the, the vineyard, founder of the Vineyard Church has said. If, if you've never heard it, he used to say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. You want to be caught up in God's purposes for the world, you have to let go of some control, accept some vulnerability and risk, come to rely less on your ability and savvy and more on the character and promise of Jesus. So Christian mission starts with a Holy Spirit, uh, with people being sent by a Holy Spirit-inspired church into known and unknown waters with our gospel message. That requires adaptability. It never ceases to amaze me or anyone who's ever read the book of Acts how adaptable the Apostle Paul is. We've only got a few stories here, but in Acts 13, did you notice he encounters two very different types of people? First, a Roman proconsul named Sergius Paulus. We learn he's intelligent, and we learn he wants to hear from Paul and Barnabas. So he's a Roman, he's in a great position of power within the Roman Empire, and he's intellectually open to discussing the gospel. Person one, Paul engages with him. Person two, a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, also called Eliamus the sorcerer. So he's a Jewish man who's been caught up in the occult or something like that. So he's religious, but he's engaged with demonic forces. Interesting character. And he's connected to not just spiritual power, but earthly power. He's an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. And in this case, Paul doesn't discern, you know, have a sort of a dialogue with him, which he seems to have with Sergius Paulus. He detects the work of the evil one who wants to stop the spread of the gospel. And so he has a fresh feeling, chapter 13, verse 9, for a dramatic power encounter which turns the man blind. This is Jesus' victory over the powers of darkness. The Holy Spirit overthrew the evil one. The apostle confounded the sorcerer. The gospel triumphed over the occult. A nice dialogue with an intellectually open Roman. A power encounter with a religious but spiritually out of control man where he ends up having an encounter. And look what happened, verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, that uh, that Bar-Jesus had been, had been blinded. He believed, for he was amazed at the miracle. No, he wasn't amazed at the miracle. He wasn't actually amazed at the miracle. He was amazed at the teaching about our Lord. What converted and amazed Sergius Paulus was not the power encounter and miracle. It was the teaching he heard, which was the gospel of grace. As in the book of Acts, signs and wonders attest to the message. They never become what, uh, they're never the, the focus. They bring an, a, a support to the message that's being brought. So that's two characters, but then in chapter, as we carry on, Paul's going to go to Paphos and Perga and Pisidian Antioch, and then he's going to enter the synagogue, and if we had time to read it, we don't, in, in chapter 13, verse 15 onwards, you read the most wonderful and rich sermon 
from the Old Testament, where, where Paul looks at the promises of the Old Testament, the stories of the Old Testament. He retells them and the leadership of the, Old Te- the, you know, the great characters in the Old Testament. And he says this was all pointing to Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his current uh, being seated at the right hand of the Father. And Paul takes these Jewish synagogue believers and Gentile God-fearers who are attending the synagogue and says, all of this Old Testament is so you can find forgiveness in the name of Jesus. And everything that you couldn't be justified from, he says, through the law of Moses, you can be justified now, put right with God through faith in Christ. So an intellectual and open Roman proconsul gets a dialogue about Christianity. A Jewish sorcerer and false prophet who wants to secure his own power gets a power encounter. A crowded synagogue gets a wonderful sermon from the Old Testament. And if you carry on into chapter 14, you find other diverse groups, another synagogue sermon. But then also in Lystra, we get the healing of a man who was lame and the local pagans who consider Paul and Barnabas gods. Read this. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was outside the city, brought balls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So Paul and Barnabas do this amazing miracle and then they go, oh, you must be the gods, you must be Zeus and Hermes. You know, this is how the the Greek gods operated and that's what they believed in. And so we don't have a a well-ordered sermon. First of all, we have Paul and Barnabas calming down an excited crowd and saying, no, don't sacrifice to us. We are not gods. We're just fellow humans. But we actually have an illiterate bunch of pagans. So when he's speaking to Jews who are intellectual in the synagogue, he says, let me start with your scriptures, the Old Testament. When he's speaking to illiterate pagans who don't believe in the scriptures and can't read, he says, let me start with not the same scriptures, but the same creation. Do you know the God who gives you the rain from heaven, the one who gives the sun, and the one who's blessed you with your crops. Don't worship those idols, those Greek gods that you have in all those temples. Come to know the living God who made you. So Paul was able to adapt, whether he's speaking to an intellectual or to an illiterate person. Paul, John Stott in his commentary says this, all this illustrates the extraordinary versatility of the apostle in adapting himself to different situations. He appeared to be equally at ease with individuals and crowds, Jews and Gentiles, the religious and the irreligious, the educated and the uneducated, the friendly and the hostile. Paul would say to a church in Corinth, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means some might be saved. As a church, we've got to learn this lesson of adapting appropriately to our culture so they can connect to the gospel message. Stock goes on to say, we need to learn from Paul's flexibility. We have no liberty to edit the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ, nor is there ever any need to do so. But we have to begin where people are to find a point of contact with them. With secularized people today, now Stock wrote this 30 years ago. He said, when secularized people today, this might be what constitutes authentic humanness the universal quest for transcendence, or the longing for personal significance and freedom. Wherever we begin, however, we we shall end with Jesus Christ, who is himself the good news, who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. So Christian mission starts with a people being sent by a Holy Spirit-inspired church into known and unknown waters with the gospel that requires adaptability 
expecting op opposition, but not deterred. Every time Paul and Barnabas preach, and every time in the book of Acts, you'll see it again and again, someone accepts, someone rejects. So Sergius Paulus believes and Elimus rejects. After his sermon in Pisidian Antioch in the synagogue, loads of people turn up the next Sabbath to hear what Paul has to say. And then we find out about the leading women of the town and the leading men of the town. They come and stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they expel them from the region. They go into another city, Iconium, in chapter 14. And again, there's division. Some side with the Jews and some side with the apostles. And then they try and kill Paul. They stone him and he flees. He, he runs out of the city. Sometimes we think the apostle Paul always took the beating. No, he ran. You read it in chapter 14. And, and then he goes to the pagans in Lystra, which we've just talked about. And, 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 and as some of many are being converted, those Jews from Iconium, and I've just walked 100 kilometers, believe it or not, come 100 kilometers to finish the stoning they didn't ever get to start. And it says in chapter 14 that they left Saul dead outside the city for dead. But he wasn't dead and he was resuscitated and he goes straight back in. He's an absolute madman, isn't he, Paul? You, know, you stone him. He's like, get up, what do I do? I just go back in and have another go, you know? Expecting opposition but not deterred. Paul said this, to one, we are the aroma that brings death. To the other, the Roman that brings life. Whenever we preach the gospel, whenever we start churches, some are going to smell it and go, that smells horrible. And some are going to smell it and go, that smells like the best thing I've ever smelled. You know you're preaching the gospel correctly in a church or in your conversations with people because you always find there's a divided response. And if someone rejects you and rejects the message, it doesn't mean you've preached the gospel badly. It might mean you've preached the gospel exactly on point and it's offended them and it smells like death. But just around the corner, someone will smell it. What is that beautiful news? I've always looked for significance in my own performance and I've never found it. I've always looked for identity from looking within and I've never found it. I've always thought I could find freedom by the world's slogans and I just feel enslaved to all these things. And you're telling me there's a power outside of me to forgive my sin, offer me eternal life, give me meaning and significance that nothing in this life can take away, give me a peace in suffering. What is this message? To some it smells beautiful. But to some they say, no, I'm not going to let go of what I want to believe. And they reject. So when Paul goes back through the churches, Helena read it, when he goes back around them, what does he say? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. To be caught up in God's mission, to respond to the mandate, means people will reject us at some point. But we must not be deterred. We must keep going. You cannot help but admire the steadfastness of Paul. As I said, he's left stone in chapter 14, 19, and he recovers and goes in. Nothing's going to stop him. He says to the Corinthian church famously, we were, famously, we were struck down, but we were not destroyed. We were knocked down, but we were not knocked out. And the steadfastness of, of, of Paul, by the way, is not just seen in opposition, it's also seen in the face of success. Flattery does not affect Paul either. You can criticize him or you can flatter him. His eyes are focused on Jesus He'll keep going with the mission. Success or failure, they, don't, they just water off a duck's, back, a, a, a duck's back. His eyes are on Jesus. So Christian mission starts with people being sent by a Holy Spirit-inspired church into known and unknown waters 
with the gospel message that requires adaptability depending on who you're engaging with. You expect opposition, but you're not deterred. And what's the final, what's mission accomplished? To plant healthy churches with growing disciples. That's the second bit that I got Helena to read. At the end of the journey, Paul and Barnabas retrace their steps. Now, you won't be able to take it all in, but this is the map. The blue is the outward journey. You see, they sort of go out. And the red, do you notice as they come back, they retrace their steps, going through Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch and Perga, and then a slight detour and back to Antioch. Verse 22, they strengthen and encourage the disciples. These, these new disciples, they're just new converts. They need to be strengthened and encouraged. Verse 23, they appointed elders in each church with prayer and fasted, committing them to the Lord in whom they had trust, trusted. They're new believers, so they needed discipleship, but they also need to be gathered into churches for long-term nurture, where there's an eldership or a leadership team appointed who will shepherd the flock. And notice, it's not one leader, it's a plurality of elders or leaders. So Paul's aim is to get healthy, established churches that can continue the nurture of the disciples and the witness in the area. So new converts, verse 21 of chapter 14. Nurtured disciples, verse 22, and healthy churches, verse 22. This is a sign that mission is accomplished. So we as a church need to keep preaching the gospel to those that don't know. If you're here today and you don't know the good news of Jesus, thanks for coming. I hope today you've heard it and you might consider it and accept it. We want to disciple new believers in life and doctrine. What does it mean to live for Jesus now? I've said he's my Lord. It's not just, oh, he saved me. He has, but saved you for what? To live for him. We need to disciple and encourage and and strengthen and then establish healthy churches for the long-term nurture of disciples and the long-term proclamation of the gospel into our region. And so Paul reports back to the sending church. He wasn't a lone ranger. Did you see that in verse 27? Right at the end, he goes back and says, oh, this is what happened. Let me tell you. It's the first missionary report. And then notice, how does the passage end? Paul moves on again. There's new churches, there's new converts, there's new leadership, and it it could feel so vulnerable, but he trusts the Holy Spirit will guide them. The Holy Spirit initially sent them, and the Holy Spirit will now guide the new churches. You might think, these are such brand new converts. These churches are so fragile. Like, Paul, you've only been there for a few weeks, and then you've come back and been... Are you sure you can leave them? Uh, Paul was never a control freak. The Spirit will take care of his church. The Spirit started the journey. The Spirit will finish the journey. Jesus said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And so we too must hear the call to keep moving on. That's why we're doing a second congregation in September and then God willing a third and as we think about becoming a church planting church. So, let's put it all together. Christian mission starts with the people being sent by a Holy Spirit-inspired church into known and unknown waters with the gospel that requires adaptability, expecting opposition but not deterred, to plant healthy churches with growing disciples. Now, you might be thinking, I could never do that. We could never do that. We're not as courageous and as determined as we're too fearful, we're, we're too comfortable, and we're not the apostle. I mean, he's the apostle, like he could do it, but we can't do it. If that's how you feel, remember another missionary who came for you. Do you remember him? He was sent by his father 
in the power of the Spirit from heaven to earth into very unknown and dangerous waters of the Roman Empire where he was born in a backwater. He adapted so much. Philippians says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, became a man and even a servant. He faced so much opposition, but was never deterred. So much opposition that he faced death, death on a cross, as he was cheered at and and laughed at by a mob of Romans and Jews. But he was not deterred. Why not? Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was the joy? You and me. The bride of Christ, the church of Christ, without wrinkle or spot, cleansed by the washing through his blood. And one day he's going to present us glorious. He did that to give you a security that this earth could never give you and a power, the power of his resurrection living in you that no army on earth could ever muster that kind of power. You feel like unstable, you feel you lack power, look at the one who came for you. And just as the Father sent him, so at the end of all the Gospels, he says, as the Father sent me, or words to this effect, so I now send you. Keep your eyes fixed on him and you'll be fine. He will build his church and the gates of hell shall never prevail. Amen. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for Acts chapter 13 and 14, without which, who knows, we may not be here, humanly speaking. This was the moment the gospel went overseas, and in chapter 16 we see it going to Europe. And here we are in Ireland today, hearing this message, because people down the years were faithful to taking it. And so, Lord, we hear that commissioning afresh ourselves, to be those that will gossip the gospel in our daily lives and as a church we'll make decisions that will see the gospel go further. Where, we've, where we lack courage, Lord, we ask for your spirit to empower us. Where we are comfortable, we pray you'd remind us of all that you've done and that would put a burning fire in our hearts to live for you. And we pray that just as this story started, it would be with the Holy Spirit's inspiration. So inspire each of us in the days, weeks and months ahead as you call us into your great mission to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.